This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Balliman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 159, brought to you in association with Smart Pension, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Lara Gilman, co-lead of iWokaPay, to talk about the intriguingly named Payment Terms as a Service. As the global governmental insanity continues, and in the UK with even more measures now, despite the less fatal than the flu COVID having all but disappeared, brackets, vaccine trials in the UK had to be moved to the US because so few people have got it, they wouldn't work. And only 1% of the average daily deaths in the UK have even managed to catch it. That's people who are literally not strong enough to last the, last the day out. Because of all this, and much, much more, the cash flow pressures on businesses continue to mount. One thing fintech cannot do is to fix this problem. We need government tech, I think, or democracy tech to fix that, another podcast for another time. What fintech can do, however, is to at least oil the problem and to help businesses with payment terms. The market for invoice discounting has been around for quite some time, market invoice being on the show once or twice, and they've now turned into market finance, which shows perhaps that a broader thinking is required. There are now government, i.e. taxpayer schemes galore, to introduce new financing into the system at the top. However, fundamentally, within business, the dynamics of business remain the same. A supplier supplies, a buyer buys, and then a buyer sells it to retail, and the whole chain needs financing. Iwakapay, we will hear more about anon. But they're part of one of London's most successful fintechs that have been on the show before, Iwaka. Iwaka Pay quotes, give suppliers all the benefits of payment terms and none of the risk. That sounds good. So without further ado, let's dive into payments as a service and not least of all, find out what that actually means. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Laura. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike. Great to be here. Now, you were telling me something that I was very impressed with, which is that you read a book recently. And one reason that I'm very impressed with that is that my skill set in the book front has rather mutated to buying books. I'm actually very good at buying books and, and uh, I haven't re- been really reading so many recently. And uh, embarrassing to say the, the pile of books that I've got to read is now actually approaching my height and I'm quite tall. So <laughs> maybe you can share with not just me, but some of our listeners who are in the same sort of situation, how you managed to read books and, and what book you had recently. Did it have a green cover? 10 points if anyone gets that cultural reference. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. So books are kind of a, a big area of focus for for walk in general, actually. What people are reading, um, you'll often see if someone buys a great book, it'll proliferate around the office, um, especially when it's things about, you know, how we work or how we think or, or um, how we can kind of be a bit more thoughtful in our approach. Um, so that those kind of books do kick around quite a bit. We're getting more and more into, into, into some novels and some more creative thinking as well. But one of the things we like about it is books provide quite deep thought as opposed to just advice. You know, someone who, the process of, of, of reading kind of someone who's written a 100 to 500 page piece of work allows you to really, th- forces them to think deeply and you get this incredible amount of insight and this huge data source so kind of the, the consumption of books is something we, we value quite high in the organization. 
And then we discuss them quite actively. So yeah, so a great, a great book I just read recently was the was the Humankind, A Hopeful History by Wilfred Bregman, which I had no anticipation to discuss, except we were talking about it just before we started the podcast. And I think for me, the thing that was quite powerful about it is his thesis is really around humans are fundamentally good and actually kind of spends most of the book debunking some of our long-held beliefs that Lord of the Flies or certain scientific tests that have been done that show that humans, you know, are really out to get each other are not true. And then it's quite interesting because he also links it back to how organizations work and function. He said, you know, if you think about empowered leadership and empowered teams who are able to delegate and encourage and kind of self-organize, this is what everyone says is the best. Well, the question is why? And he's like, well, at the core of it is, you know, humanity are fundamentally good. They fundamentally want to be productive. That doesn't help you read more books, but it is a great book to add to your list that will make it a little bit taller. Yes, yes, I. Um, <laughs> that's true. I shall buy it and it'll uh, make me even more embarrassed. It's certainly true that in a world where we absorb many, many tiny little sort of sugar lumps of information during the day, whether sort of social media or emails coming in or you sort of, you know, read too many articles on the, the internet or, or, or stuff like that. That does crowd out, as we sort of see with actually too many young people, perhaps, and, and the whole sort of work stuff, that does crowd out the, the deeper study. And having actually sort of uh, looked at about 300 books in the last couple of years in terms of the history of the company and the, and the governance of the company and produced my, my own book, then a lot of people respond and I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, sure, Mike, I don't have time to read the book, but what are the three most important things about managing a board? Well, okay, I can tell you. And actually, once I finally got the unlistedboard.com going, I shall have a, you know, a freebie sheet on it which says the three most important things for the startup and these five most important things for the scale-up and, and stuff like that. And that's fine. But unsurprisingly, if all you ever do is eat sugar lumps rather than cabbage and red meat or vegetables or whatever you eat, you don't get the same nutrition. On this book, it fits one or two recently. I mean, Stephen Pinker was another one who's basically optimistic about it. And again, it always has to be simplified. But there were these two kind of stalagmites and stalactite views. I mean, there's, I don't know, Hobbes or somebody like that. You know, life is brutal and everyone's just sort of fighting each other to sort of stay alive and that kind of thing. And the other, which is, humanity's wonderful. We're all peace-loving people. You know, just left our own devices. Everything be wonderful. In a sense, you can argue till the cows come home about thesis and antithesis. But the synthesis is surely that they're like stalactites and stalagmites. And that over time, over time, one book is more relevant than the other. So, for example... Whether Genghis Khan was a, a peace-loving gentleman, we shall never know. But the evidence shows that he was a nutter who destroyed countless people across Central Asia um, and all that kind of stuff. And, and zeroing it in more practically, in business, I mean, I'm very confused because I know people who argue that the evidence shows that psychopaths rise to the top of the highest companies, uh, you know, and 1% and of the, the world, I think, are psychopaths, as in their brain is just wired differently. And that therefore, this is detrimental. Other studies I, I show that actually this isn't true at all. This is an urban myth. It, it doesn't true, whatever. Be that as it may or may not be. I think when we're coming back to the scale of organisations, and I walk as an example, I walk a pay is another example, one of the books sitting on my, my desk here actually, which isn't part of my pile, it's a separate pile about business books. It's called The Fish Rots From The Head Down. And having seen many fintechs for many years, the most important thing which won't have passed you by in a fintech, in any tech, in any business, is the quality of leadership. So 
if you look over centuries, just taking the, the UK, sometimes we had good kings and queens. Queen, Queen Elizabeth I was fantastic. Things really improved. Sometimes we had really bad things and thing, you know, things fell apart. Cromwell went and beat up the Irish. They've never forgiven him quite rightly. He beat up the, the Scottish. You know, he chopped heads off kings. He banned Christmas carols. That wasn't so good at the time. So assuming that you're not banning Christmas carols uh, in, in Iwaka and, and assuming that uh, the fish isn't rotting from the head down, then it's almost platitudinously correct that good leadership, and I think it comes from leadership, you know, the Mongols didn't have much chance under Genghis Khan. You had to go along with it was. In samurai Japan, in, in Tokugawa era, the samurai could test the sharpness of their swords by chopping the heads off peasants. And that wasn't a crime. So yes, it comes to leadership, doesn't it, really? And I think that good leadership can bring out the best of people. And yes, maybe people are, uh, in general, good. I mean, without, without speaking too much about the history of, of um, UK monarchy, uh, where I'm going to be quite weak at some point. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is... Um... This question around around leadership and culture and community is is an important one, and I think it just it's it's a baseline ingredient that allows an organization to flourish. And I think that we at Iwaka actually one of the things that we kind of um, sort of called out was early on the importance of culture and the importance of, of defining what good culture is and and trying to lay down some some parameters. It's not a silver bullet, but it's certainly the kind of glue that allows a, an organization to evolve and develop. And I think for us, that's actually been quite powerful. And certainly one thing that's really exciting is, is you know, when you set up a new business inside of a business, a new product inside of a business, you wonder how, how that's going to work. You know, how is the molecule level connection going to happen? Are we going to be able to share ideas? And for Iwaka Pay, that's been actually huge. You know, we, we've been able to really build off the engine that Iwaka is and been able to digest and, and work together across the business to kind of define what good looks like. And I think that really speaks to more of a cultural element. We prioritize openness, that we prioritize inclusion, we prioritize collaboration, because we recognize that's where good ideas come from. And I think that speaks to this idea that, you know, it's not about a win-lose, it's really about identifying win-win opportunities. You know, we see this actually even in negotiation generally, but that underlying assumption that we are aligned to the same goal, that we are kind of part of this bigger organization has been an accelerator. Whereas I know, in, you know, certainly in, in some big corporates, it doesn't always feel that way. So it's quite, it's, it's been a really good experience. And I think it speaks to a lot of the, a very solid foundation when it comes to kind of our culture. Yes. And I think culture is the absolutely key word. Anish Varma of Air was on the show earlier in the year. And he was talking about the fact that at Air, he wrote a book for internal circulation only on the culture of Air. And he was saying that, um, although it took him some time, of course, that was the most useful thing he's done because he, he finds that decision making is so much easier because people are aligned with expectations, you know? For example, let's take an obvious case. Revolut's culture is quite well known to be sort of hyper-aggressive and, and more sort of CS, CSFB than CSFB, as it, as it were, in terms of American sort of investment banking. And that's fine. And if you go there, you know that's the world. If you want that kind of thing, you know, you go there. Other places have got um, softer culture. And if you want that, you go there. But then everybody knows. And I've, I was just corresponding with an important fintech recently, and they were talking about the same thing, actually. So I think many people have noticed that it's really important to have a culture. And if you haven't had experience of organisational cultures, it might be quite a tricky thing to come up with because it's very easy to say sort of, you know, motherhood and apple pie. You go through Roger's thesaurus and pick out all the nice objectives and you say, we are all these nice objectives, you know. But people who rotate and, and people do rotate through more companies than they used to will find out that even if there isn't a written culture in a 
company or even the, even the right principles, you know, go to Glassdoor, you'll find out that your mileage differs in terms of the culture in, in companies. And I think it's really important to, to start with that as well as the business, as well as the business mission. And I think also there's an honesty around the imperfection. Like culture is hard and it's hard to maintain and people evolve and teams evolve. And, and I think that the part of it is having the honesty of, of recognizing when you either make a misstep or something doesn't feel authentic, but not letting that erode the underlying core. That's a problem, I think, when, when culturally people say, well, this is our value. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the community says like, well, we say that's our value, but do we live and breathe it? And what about this example? I think if you acknowledge that that culture is living and breathing and that sometimes you are going to make a misstep on, on a value that you hold dear unintentionally, but you have the openness to say, oh, wow, you're right. That wasn't right. Or, or we want to evolve it. Or let's have this conversation. Maybe the value is wrong or maybe where we are is wrong. I think that's kind of a really important, this openness of, of dialogue. So certainly, uh, you know, I'm sure there are uh, moments, I mean, there are definitely moments in Iwaka where, where we have taken a misstep culturally, but we've also been, I've, my experience has been that we've been pretty transparent because we want our values to be strong. And so we use it as an opportunity to learn and grow rather than saying, oh, no, 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 let's let's be quiet about it because it didn't go the way we thought it did. Yes, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, without going into the, the, the bigger picture, that's one of the problems at the moment, which is that in the difficulties that America is having in 2020, which are, are not entirely insignificant, there seems to be a whole body of thought, which is that if you make a mistake, that's disastrous, which is very strange for America because I've all seen them sort of very good at making mistakes in mm. business. You know, hey, I, I failed three times. I got bust three times. But actually, my fourth is a great su- success. That resiliency is key. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, America screwed up many times. Of course, Britain screwed up many times. Of course, China screwed up many times. Of course, every human being has screwed up. Nobody goes to their deathbed thinking, hey, I got everything everything right. So yeah. yes, one needs a tolerance of failure. And in organisations that I've seen, or in divisions of organisations in the past that I've seen, that are not prepared to admit that we are all flawed human beings, we're all flawed organisations, we're going to cock it up, but we are like a toddler learning to walk. Anyone who's ever seen a toddler learning to walk, the thing falls over all the time on the floor, but it gets up and it tries again. And eventually, the error rate goes down. And that's how I see going from the startup through to the, the scale-up. So as you say, that's an, that's an important thing. Yeah, and actually linking this back, I'll, I'll do a shout-out. There's an organisation we work with um, called Class 35, and one of the partners, Al Cultural, has written a, um, a few pieces on their blog about, about innovation and the evolution of innovation. And he talks about this idea of waste, this how can you have productive waste, because without a desire to fail or to kind of take high-risk projects, you never get the, the returns you're looking for. If you only optimize on efficiency, you really miss, you miss some of the big gains. And so that I think that actually very quickly, you know, we've gone, from, we've gone from the kings and queens of Europe to organizational culture to innovation. But I think it all is kind of linked. And I think that mindset of we are a living and breathing society. We, with our you know, rules, are living and breathing. We need to constantly review them as the world changes around us. And that also speaks to how we think about innovation and how we think about creating the right dynamic to allow some level of failure without, without losing kind of control, without making it completely, completely wasteful or un, you know, without any sort of um, line of, of how, how are we going to be able to make this reasonable. And I think that's where kind of culture and innovation probably come together. What do we believe in? what's important to us, and therefore, what are we willing to experiment on and how much are we willing to experiment are important questions that every organization kind of has to ask themselves constantly. Absolutely. And we must move on to this yeah, the thing that you're, you're so excited about, as well as the, uh, the culture. But it's a, a useful preface because it, it is quite an important thing that all organizations can tighten up at the moment to increase their chance of survival over the next 6, 12, 18 months. It's hardly been made easier. But it's not a coincidence at all that there is a parallel between, as it were, the microcosm and macrocosm on this. Because if you go back to the day when business in Europe was done in guilds, 
Guilds were a chunk of society. They had festivals, they had feast days, they had their own rules about how they operate. And then when the company came along in the 16th century, the company was deliberately, I mean, well, not deliberately, the company was called a commonwealth. It was a small c commonwealth, as opposed to the land as a whole, which was the commonwealth, the common space wealth of the people. So one reflected the other. And to an extent, given what we're seeing, sort of, you know, the cultural difficulties and sort of near-cultural collapse, if things go badly, of a lot of traditional values in Western countries right now, it, it may well be that the experience of people in companies can be used vice versa. The company was created in the image of the state. It started with a court managing it, but it may well now be that the state as a whole, uh, UK being a good example, can actually learn from how the best companies manage themselves, how they handle issues and how they handle challenges. So just very briefly then, moving on from that, just to, to go over your career journey in terms of all these books you read and all these places <laughs> you work and, and what brought you to co-leading Iwaka Pay today. Yeah, it's a great question. So I um, I have actually started my journey in fintech back in 2012. My original introduction was fintech, probably before we realized it was fintech, when I was working on mobile money. Uh, so mobile money is the sort of M-Pesa story, which is mobile network operators who are launching new payment systems across um, Africa and Asia and how they set up those distribution networks to effectively create human networks of places you can cash in and cash out while using your phone to, to, to send money. It always made me laugh when kind of Monzo came out and, and the new Challenger Banks came out with this functionality. It's like, oh, you can send money on your phone. Whereas, you know, in East Africa, <laughs> they've been that. doing it for a decade. Yes, exactly. Yes, they were the pioneers. Yeah, exactly. Very much of a leapfrogging um, kind of mentality. And actually, for me, that was fascinating because it was it was it comes to the core of this question that I've always found really interesting, which is how do you how do you repurpose um, work you've already done to solve new problems? And that was very much the core of mobile money. They have you know mobile network operators had built this incredible distribution network for airtime and had this sort of you know network of coverage. How could you solve a new problem? And mobile money has really been an exciting place to watch that innovation and watch it grow and develop. So I, I, I was there for five years working with the, the GSMA, which was an incredible experience in the mobile for development team and the mobile money team. My former boss, Seema Desai, moved on into, into kind of more local fintech and, and kind of through a few steps, ended up at Iwaka. Um, I, she is a great person and I followed her uh, eventually after a few other um, kind of pieces of work inside Iwaka. And I was really excited about being more locally based. So I wanted to work on, on fintech in the UK where I am. And I also was excited about the kind of mission statement. Um, Iwaka really is trying to reinvent how finance work for small business and especially the long, the long tail of small businesses. And for me, that's a really exciting and challenging problem. How do you think about making finance available to a million businesses? So I, I kind of started there. So as my feeding memory isn't so good, I, very briefly, I would call Iwaka in sort of simple and perhaps now in today terms as just being a direct lender. So there were plenty of peer-to-peer -peer lenders who took money in from the, the peer, as it were, on one hand and, and lent it to somebody on the other side. When Christoph was on the show, who was talking a few hours ago about actually how they raise a bunch of money and, and then sort of lend, lend it out like that. So... Moving on, before we get back to how Iwaka Pay then grows up uh, in that organisation, obviously many times we've talked about payments on the podcast over and over again for many years, so the general things will be familiar. But in terms of the areas that you're addressing, historically, how did the market work? What challenges arose with that model? And then therefore, what opportunities came out of that? 
and then in terms of the future and what you, you guys are delivering and, uh, and other businesses are delivering, how can this all be improved? So just starting with sort of the, the background of this kind of stuff. Walker started back in 2012 and it was really born out of this idea that finance hadn't made the leap to the internet era. You know, it was still it's still incredibly hard to go to your bank and, and get a loan, get an overdraft. It was still incredibly hard, you know, to bring finance people need it to make it instant, to make it accessible. And so uh, that's kind of where where I walk started very much as this, you know, there is a funding gap. And actually, since then, the funding gap has grown. The figure we kind of hear from the Bank of England is, is more than 10 billion. It's one of the most severe funding gaps, you know, facing facing our economy. And that was before we went into the crisis. For people who haven't heard the phrase funding gap or, or have heard it and always vaguely aware of what it means, funding gap is more specifically is more specifically the ability to fulfill demand. The number of of the SMEs have grown substantially over the last decade, and their financing needs are there to manage cash flow. However, the banks have retrenched, certainly in overdrafts. The market growth of supply has not kept up with demand. Fintechs are filling it. And in fact, actually 30% of SME lending comes from the fintech community. Oh, wow, that's a great step. Yeah, we have 400,000 businesses that have been served by fintechs in in the UK. And for us, it's, it's kind of the sign that there is this opportunity and this need, and it's really a critical need when it comes to being able to allow businesses to kind of keep working. Our SME economy is critical to our economy as a whole. A vast number of businesses go out of business every year due to cash flow problems. And that's somewhere where finance can solve a very meaningful and quick and effective role. When we talk about the funding gap, that's what we mean. The level of demand relative to the level of supply is not balanced. In a certain segment of the market. I mean, if you're IBM or Coca-Cola, oh, exactly. you're going to get funding We're talking somehow. talking about SMEs. You do your own bond or whatever. Exactly. But if, if you're sort of, I don't know, the London fintech podcast selling hoodies, which is my latest business venture idea that cropped up in the last podcast or two, then I might not find it easy to do a sort of a bond raise for $100 million to do hoodies. And my local bank might be having other problems in its hands. And, and in terms of how things go forward, we don't know. But certainly in the UK, when Mr. Sunak finishes paying people to sit on the sofa for months and months and months, there is going to be another economic fall, there are going to be huge bad debts, etc, etc. And, you know, it's hard to make out a case, should we say, that at the beginning of next year, bank balance sheets in the UK and elsewhere are looking healthier than they were a year ago. So one can only imagine that the central scenario is that the funding gap will be increasing. I'm very pleased to hear that roughly a third of it is filled by fintechs. So in terms of aggregate demand for funding gap products, shall we say, that looks like a market that is growing. So funding in general, that's a whole of almost what the city is about. There are many, 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 many ways of funding and and many, many ways of, of raising money. So it's a complex ecosystem. In terms of the area that you guys are looking at solving and sorting in a different fashion. How do you zoom down from the entire funding gap of SMEs in the UK, which is quite a large market, to what you lot are focusing on? If I go back to kind of what I mentioned earlier about the the mission of the organization is to fund a million small businesses. Since we launched in 2012, we've already served over 50,000 customers. Our USP is in our ability to understand a business. We have built a sophisticated tech stack to digest massive amounts of information about the business, about their experience, about who they are, who the owners are, and be able to take a 360-degree view. With that, it means that we are able to reach more businesses, do it faster, make it easier for them. So for us, that's really kind of the core, the thrust of, of where we focus. What kind of size of business are we talking about? Our average loan size is around £10,000. So we really are kind of making this much more about the accessibility at the micro end of the market. 
Right, so if you're lending, say, 10 grand, you're presumably quite often talking to businesses where you've just got sort of less than two handfuls of people in it. Exactly, exactly. The way we kind of talk about it is we work with the cafes and coffee shops of the world, as well as we do have, have a number of, small, of larger business come to us, and that really speaks to what they're looking for is our, our high level of service. So what we're trying to kind of build, what we are building, is this high-touch service-led approach that still is accessible for, for all kinds of businesses. So we're really encouraged by the kind of feedback we get on Trustpilot and the kind of response we get from our customers around why they come back. They come back to us for the service and they use us for the accessibility and the ease of the product. I see. So coming on to this sexy-sounding payments as a service or payment terms as a service or something like that, then just sort of unwrapping that as, say, one of the many products the SME funding gap needs... Yeah, what, what does payment terms as a service mean? Yeah, it's a great question. So let, let me maybe take a step back. Um, our core product is what we call a flexi loan. And that's really, um, it's, an, it's kind of an alternative to an overdraft. It allows um, businesses to, to kind of manage their cash flow needs um, as, as and when they need to. So part of that, we also ask people, you know, how are you using this product and, and what, do you, what is your kind of driving need? And one of, the, one of the reasons that came up fairly regularly was either to pay a supplier or to cover an invoice. And so we started looking at this and wondering, well, you know, if it's really around this invoicing moment, could we make something that is more, more tailored? And that, that kind of opened the door to investigate, you know, what, what is happening here? What's this dynamic between buyer and seller? And that's where we really honed in on this idea around payment terms. Our UK norm is that a B2B supplier provides their customer 30-day payment terms. And in doing so, they are opening themselves up to not just the credit risk of their customer, of their buyer, also, all the admin that goes with it. So whether or not the, the customer pays on time, will the supplier need to chase them? There's a lot of kind of frustration or, or let's say inefficiency in, in that current setup. And so we thought, well, if they're using our core products you know, to solve this problem, could we make something that's more tailored for this use case? And that's kind of the early I walk a pay where I walk a pay was born. This idea that we could actually take payment terms off the shoulders of small businesses using the engine that we've built already. Essentially how it works is, we uh, work with suppliers and they effectively allow their customers to pay with Iwaka Pay. In doing so, the supplier gets paid up front. Then we have a relationship with the buyer and the buyer has the opportunity to spread the cost over 90 days. Now, what this means in practice is as soon as the supplier gets paid, that's it. There's no further risk to them. It is now between the buyer and Iwaka to kind of manage that, that payment. And the buyer is able to spread their costs um, as they need to. They can repay early. They can spread it evenly over 90 days. So for us, we feel like we're solving both sides of the equation, letting suppliers give the payment terms they want to give while giving buyers the optionality to manage how they want to use those payment terms. We'll come back in a minute to the, the security that you guys take, assuming you're not a charity or maybe it's unsecured or whatever. But when you're talking like that, it sounds to me that, that, that sort of as a metaphor or as a model, it sounds very much like domestic trade finance in terms of the various trade finance people we've had on the show. Prima Dollar being the, the most recent example, they were helping people send stuff from Bangladesh to the UK or, or something like that. And again, what does the supplier want? Supplier ideally wants box of stuff, goes out of door, cash arrives in bank there and then forget about it kind of stuff and it, it, all, it all goes away. And then of course that goes on a, on a container ship and it goes around the world and that takes quite a while. But in the case of what you're talking about, it is like a domestic trade finance, which is that if I sell a hoodie, 
I want the money now for my hoodie. And then, you know, the hoodie goes off and it sort of eventually gets its way to the, the customer. And equally, the customer in this case, it may not be a, a perfect analogy, but never mind. The customer in this case doesn't want to pay until he's got the hoodie. Because well, I, I don't want to take a risk. Oh, the hoodie's no good. Or it's got one arm, this hoodie. This is ridiculous. And I paid for it three months ago. It's actually a great analogy because if you think about it, we launched I Walk a Pay back in June and we launched it with a port called Leveling the Paying Field. And one of the things that we observed, and certainly we're not the first, it's, it comes out in UK Finance's payments survey. Go callers talk about this, that B2C payments are way more likely to get paid up front. So if you're buying a hoodie as a consumer, I'm going to pay you up front for that. Whereas a business, they are you know twice as likely to extend payment terms. And so the question is, well, what's happening there? What's the difference? And can we, can we make that better? And so for us, this is this idea of businesses need flexibility. Um, you know, we, from the same survey, we saw that you know, 30% of customers, of business customers said they were considering not working with a supplier because of the payment terms they offered. So they want that flexibility to help manage their own cash flow. However, suppliers are you know, disproportionately exposed to this risk. And in fact, we, you know, 20% of them said that not only are they exposed to the risk, but they actually get worse payment terms from their suppliers than they give to their customers. So there are suppliers who are also getting, getting squeezed in this, in this value chain. And so you're absolutely right. It's a great example for the hoodie. Right. Or it may be, it'd be an even better example if I sold you 100 London FinTech podcast hoodies now. And uh, then, you know, every time you have a customer, you say, and by the way, not only do you work with Iowaka Pay and get all these amazing things, you get half price on uh, London FinTech podcast hoodies. That's great. Because again, there's quite a sort of chain and, and time there. And going back to a sort of a domestic trade finance model, really you've got supplier whose requirements are as if they were a square and the buyer whose ones are a circle and you're standing between the square and the circle. So picking up this point about security and you guys not being a charity. So if you're stepping in the middle and doing financing, there's always a chance that whoever's going to pay you in the future doesn't. And if you've got sort of a few bars of gold bullion, that helps you sleep easier at night by way of security, assuming you don't take gold bullion as uh, security from your suppliers. How does that credit risk angle work for, for you guys providing this product? So I walk up hay is really in a fortunate position that we are built on the engine that already existed. And, and our risk decisioning is a key part of our value proposition. We now have whatever, eight, nine years of experience understanding small businesses, understanding their propensity to pay, understanding their, their risk in a much deeper sense than many other, certainly many of the incumbent banks, I'd argue. So we're quite good at understanding that credit risk. And we've built I walk a pay on the same principle. And in fact, that's part of our value proposition to both buyers and suppliers, that we, we will look at your whole business, we will take that credit risk, because that's what we do. So it's unsecured lending. It's unsecured lending, correct. We do take personal guarantees um, as part of this product. And as part of our kind of core product, that's, that's been a certainly a, a norm for us. So it's allowed us to, to lend to a wider range of businesses, for example, startups, where who have a thin revenue history, a, a personal guarantee is a great way to provide them with, with fair access to finance. Going forward, you know, we certainly see this as a, an area that, that may evolve and part of our BCR commitments, which is a grant that we won last year. And BCR for people not in the UK is? Uh, so the BCR is the Banking Competition Remedies Scheme. It's, um, it's basically an innovation scheme that's, uh, that's supported off the back of uh, some of the RBS reappropriations of funds post-crisis um, and how they kind of uh, sell it off. The, the government has kind of put it back into, into the economy in the form of an innovation grant. And we were fortunate enough to win one of these grants last year. And as part of that grant, we are, I Walk a Pay was a core part of that grant, as was our open lending platform, which allows other partners to innovate on top of our, uh, of our technology stack and a launch of a no personal guarantee scheme product, which is intended to sort of make financing more 
tailored, especially as we get into um, businesses where a, a personal guarantee may or may not be required. Right. Okay. So in terms of the sort of the industry at the moment, if I want 10 grand to finance a bunch of hoodies, today I give the guarantee, but especially with things like the BCR and stuff in the future, there may be some stage in the future, at which point I don't give a guarantee, but, but anybody who's been involved in finance will, will realise there'll be a different uh, cost involved. If you look at sort of um, London FinTech podcast history of uh, doing hoodies, it's pretty minimal or zero more precisely. Good. Okay. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So you've mentioned iWalkerPay once or twice in that in terms of the payments as a service. Is there anything else you want to tell the millions of listeners out there about uh, Pay and what particular shout outs would you like to shout out? Yeah, so um, iWalkaPay is is now available. So you can come check us out on iwalkapay.co.uk. But more importantly, we're also looking at um, partners who we can work with, particularly businesses who are focused on the invoicing side of the solution. So we are talking to lots of different kinds of partners, and we're really excited to to kind of tap into those to those networks. Um, so if anyone is interested. And obviously, uh, for those uh, B2B suppliers out there who work with small businesses and sell to small businesses, you can sign up at our website uh, and uh, start sending pay links uh, and giving your customers better payment terms. Excellent. Well, it's always good to hear innovation as we've started. It's very challenging circumstances, which to me only seem to be getting worse rather than better. However, the fintech market as a whole was promoted by the catastrophes around 2008. I think without 2008, fintech wouldn't necessarily have gone anywhere. And it may well be that 12 years later in 2020, with the catastrophes of 2020, it provides yet another fillip for fintech as a whole to help the economy, to help businesses. I'm particularly impressed by your stat that 30% 30% of small co's have had fintech loans, uh, and it may well be going forward, as I say, with bank balance sheets deteriorating, that businesses such as yours and many others form an increasingly vital part of the economy, which would be exciting to see. So thank you very much for that, Lara. It's very interesting to hear, and I wish you every success in the future. Great. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city With the 
wild like the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.